HSD are experts in delivering tech solutions to the vet sector, working with clients such as the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, ASQA and the VRQA. HSD understand the complexities of VET, its systems and data. We specialise in systems integration, customer relationship management systems, Microsoft platforms and migrating organisations to the cloud. So whether you're looking for advice on integrating your systems, meeting your data reporting requirements or looking to gain insights into your stakeholders, HSD are here to help. Visit hsd.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. From Claire Field and Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 48, and this week I'm speaking with vet consultant Joe Newbury from Newbury Consulting. I invited Joe on to talk about a really important piece he's written recently. It's on the Newbury Consulting website, or there's a link in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. It's on assessment in VET, particularly what RTOs get wrong with observational assessment, what ASQA and the other regulators are looking for, and how to get it right. If you work in VET and your RTO has had problems with assessment, and let's face it, typically up to 75% of RTOs have non-compliances with assessment at audit, then this is going to be the most useful 30 minutes of your year. I truly cannot recommend this episode strongly enough. It was so good and contains such practical but rich details that I've split out the second part of our conversation and turned it into a separate episode so that hopefully no one will be put off by the length of our discussion. So first up, here's Joe unpacking what you need to know about observational assessment in VET in really simple terms that I think we're all going to understand. And then if you want to hear about the recent audit of ASQA by the Australian National Audit Office and Joe's experiences both as a former auditor and now as a consultant, then you'll also want to listen to the next episode. Enough from me. Here's Joe. Well, it is a real pleasure for me to be joined today by someone I've known probably for over a decade, uh, Joe Newbury, who is a consultant in the vet sector. And I've invited Joe along to have a chat because he's published a piece which is super impressive about assessment in VET. Uh, that's one for the nerds, but I know there's a lot of nerds who who listen. So, Joe, thank you very much. It, people won't realise quite how many times we've had a go at putting this together. So, thank you for your patience. <laughs> Lovely to have you uh, uh, join us. And can you give listeners a bit about your background, who you are, and also the kind of work that you do in the sector? Sure. Well, th- thanks, Claire, for having me on. It's a, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be invited along to speak with you on your podcast. So I uh, have been involved in training, I suppose, most of my working life. I, I of course, was a soldier in the Army, and uh, I did that for a very long time. And, you know, in the Army, uh, we uh, 
we grow up as trainers. It's actually part of your uh, promotion training. You have to learn how to give instruction. And, and then as a sergeant, you need to learn how to undertake assessment. Um, and so I grew up in that environment. And uh, and about, I think of the, how old I was at the time, but uh, around about 1996, I went off and, uh, and applied for it and became a recruit instructor at Kapuka. And um, and that was a, a, a just a fantastic job. You know, I was working down at Wagga there at Kapuka full time, uh, training uh, recruits and uh, for a couple of years there. Uh, it was a very intensive training program. Along the, my the, my career, I always had, you know, something to do with training. Toward the later stages of my career, I was a, a warrant officer as a training designer, working full time in, in training design and trade management. And so, um, and that really is where I, you know, really got my teeth into, uh, you know, more about training design and um, and particularly competency development, and so forth. Left the army and uh, and immediately started doing some work as a consultant in training design, uh, predominantly back to uh, defence or, or contractors for defence. And uh, that was probably around about the time that I met you. Uh, I remember our, our meeting, we've, we first met up in Brisbane there as part of the, my uh, application to uh, become an auditor with NARA. Then I suppose having had that background in, you know, in, in giving instruction and, in, and uh, in training design and a little bit of uh, background in compliance, and so it was one of those uh, situations where uh, you, uh, to a degree, you fake it until you make it. <laughs> and I suppose since then, since about 2005, my uh, the work that I've been doing and we still do to today is just working with clients. Uh, clients have all sorts of needs. You know, they want to become an RTO or they want to extend their scope or they want to renew their registration. And so we will, you know, work with the client on whatever on whatever they need uh, to uh, to help them uh, get that get the job done, basically. Um, as a company, of course, I mean, I spend uh, 90, uh, 95% of my time doing that, uh, consulting and working with clients. But as a company, of course, we have a, a, a broader offering of services. We've uh, offered, uh, you know, a fitness compliance software for now for over a decade. And that's a that's an important service for us and and for our clients. We have a small team. I, I work from my uh, home or office in my town of Gunnedah, and uh, and most of my staff are down in Melbourne. And we've got one up in Sydney and then one up in uh, in the Sunshine Coast. So we're a bit all spread out. Uh, I, I like to think we're a bit of a modern business. We were working remotely uh, from home very effectively long before COVID came along. So you were you were ahead of the trend as you are on many many things, and you've been. Uh, I think a, a little modest in your fake it till you make it. I mean, there was a reason why uh, we were keen at the National Audit and Registration Agency to bring you on, even though you didn't have audit experience, because you have a real clarity of thinking about training and assessment. And it's that clarity of thinking that just comes through so compellingly. And I will put a link um, <clears throat> to this piece that you've written in the, the notes for the um, for the podcast. So if people haven't seen it yet, they can click on and read it. But you write about in this piece, Joe, about observational assessment in VET. And there's four particular points that you make around um, assessment, the role of criterion referenced assessment, the need for observation assessment, benchmarking, 
and then recording that observation evidence. So if people haven't read your piece yet, and again, I would urge people to have a read of it, but can you talk us through some of the key points that you think people in VET need to be thinking about under those four categories that you've identified? Mm, sure. You know, as many listeners will know, uh, you know, in the VET sector, we use and, and operate according to a criterion referenced assessment. Of course, the the other there are different assessment models. Another common model is what we would call norm referencing. And you would commonly see norm referencing more used in a tertiary sector or in, in particular in primary and secondary education. And that's totally appropriate for those settings. But but in our sector, we use criterion reference assessment. And so a criterion reference assessment model, uh, it presents descriptors of performance requirements uh, according to a task, and we are assessing the candidate against that requirement. We're not comparing the candidate with the performances of others, so we're not particularly you know, comparing and grading the, the candidate in a criterion reference model. We simply have specified the standard and, and our job as an assessor is to assess the candidate against those criteria uh, and, and make a decision about whether they are competent or not. And, and so that's really the fundamental concept on which the vet sector is basically founded. As an industry, we've made a decision uh, back in the 80s to adopt a, a competency-based uh, uh, training and assessment model. Uh, it, it evolved uh, over the years from the 80s into the 90s. And, and now we are, you know, uh, a country that's quite blessed with having a very mature national training framework, which, of course, is the training packages, qualifications, units of competency. And, and at the core of those units of competency, we have performance criteria. And I suppose the point I really try to make in, in, my, in my article, my recent article, is to say that those performance criteria are what we are assessing the candidate uh, doing. You know, uh, they, 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 they've gone through a really robust process to be approved into a unit of competency and nationally endorsed. And our job is to compare the student's performance against those performance criteria. Um, a couple of the points I make in, in there as well is is we can't really observe a candidate against those performance criteria uh, unless we uh, have enabled a task uh, to, to for the candidate to perform against uh, you know according to the unit requirements, and, and that's a fundamental. I find that that's a fundamental uh, thing that falls down. That I find you know when I'm going about my work, I find that RTOs aren't doing. Uh, they often. You know, they might even have an observation tool, you know, with the performance criteria unpacked into the into the observation tool. But often, you know, there won't be a, an identifiable task that we're giving to the student to, to, to do so that we can watch them do it. I often say that we, we need to have the task that sets up the opportunity so that we can actually observe the candidate and compare their performance to the criteria. Um, Probably another point I'd like to make in this in this part is about uh, criterion reference assessment. Is that and, and a lot of people might be thinking, uh, you know, how often have we been made non-compliant uh, for just copying and pasting performance criteria, you know, out of a, a unit into an observation tool? And I agree. I agree that that is a, a common non-compliance. Uh, of course, a lot of the commercial suppliers, you know, uh, that aren't particularly taking a, an assessment design approach. That's how they would create their tools, by just copying and pasting them in. 
And look, in some units of competency, that works really well. It, it, it does. You know, some units of competency have been written in such a way that the performance criteria are completely observable and, and they lend themselves to be to be used as an observation criteria. But in some units of competency, and, and I'm thinking here, uh, you know, units of competency within the community services training package is probably the best example, where, where a lot of these performance criteria are written in such a way that they're very holistic and you would read out the criteria and you'd still be thinking, okay, but what am I looking for, you know? And so I make the point about using the performance criteria. That is an absolute solid point. I reinforce that. But I'll always, you know, caveat that by saying, look, you know, we do need to make sure we're assessing all the performance criteria, but but in some cases you will need to customise those for the context of the task that's being observed. So so that's a, that's a really... Uh, critical point. So, you know, just to cap off uh, the point about criterion reference assessment, uh, criterion reference assessment is at the core of what we do in VET. And, and we've got this wonderful national training framework with these, you know, endorsed units of competency full of performance criteria. And that's what we're meant to be observing. I, I just might make one other sneaky uh, point here before I move on, uh, that uh, often what I might see is is people using the performance evidence. So since performance evidence has been introduced into units of competency some years ago now, I, I find that, you know, for whatever reason, I see that people are, are using those as the observation criteria. And, and what I would say to that is that the performance evidence statement is establishing the scope of the of the task. It's establishing the amount of evidence that needs to be collected, the range of performances that the student needs to demonstrate. It's establishing the scope of the assessment evidence of the student's performance that needs to be collected. But they are not what we are assessing, okay? What we are assessing is the performance criteria. So it comes back to reinforce the point about criteria and reference assessment. So hopefully that's, um, that's okay. It's uh, very clear. No, no, that's really. I mean, you, you, what you do is you take away the jargon and you you explain it. It's it's great. Please keep mm. going. We're in your hands. So the next item in the article, I talked about the need for observation assessment, and this is really something that I've been banging my drum about for a very long time. Taking the the understanding, of the, you know, or, or agreeing on the position of criteria, the need for criteria and reference assessment, every unit of competency needs observation. Now, I know if we look hard enough, and I'm sure if I looked hard enough, um, I could certainly go and find some where some people might say, oh, look, it's, a, it's, a, it's what we call a knowledge-based unit. And there are some of those. They're very rare, but there are some of those. But the vast majority of units of competency, I think there's something like 17,000 units of competency. And so the vast majority of those, they all require observation in order to assess them. The easiest way to explain this is that if uh, the units that I gave as an example in the article are, are actually great. Uh, I sort of stumbled across them, to be honest, and, and then uh, thought these are a great example. So the, first, the one that I give, which is directly observable, is a unit called care for nursery plants. Now, that could be load a truck or dig a hole or operate a forklift, you know. These are very practical tasks. And so, of course, the performance criteria lay out the requirements uh, that this candidate needs to be assessed against. And, and it's and I think it's everybody would agree that we would observe the student perform that task in order to collect the valid and sufficient evidence. Where it becomes grey in this space is, is where Units of competency 
uh, describe what I call more cognitive tasks. And an uh, example that I gave in, in my article was around a unit of competency uh, for developing an, integrate, an integrated pest management uh, program. But I, I, I often, uh, you know, when I'm explaining this, give the example. Another example is undertake a risk analysis, um, you know, develop a project plan, uh, develop a business plan. Now, all these types of tasks, and they're very common, particularly at a higher AQF level, they all require cognitive skills to be applied. I, I often say that, you know, if you were a fly on the wall watching someone develop a business plan or, a, or undertake a risk analysis, the reality is you probably wouldn't see them do much at all. You know, you might you might see them tap on a keyboard or move their mouse uh, but but what's happening is there's actually a massive amount of activity happening, but it's all happening up in their mind as they, in risk analysis, they think through consequence and likelihood and they rate the risk. And, and it's the same in this unit around um, around integrated pest management planning. You know, they're, they're analysing information about the, the, the likely pests and how they're going to manage that and, and the sequence of events. And, and it's very much a cognitive task. And, and so this is where most people... Uh, you know, uh, need to sort of make this paradigm leap from thinking of that as an, a written assignment, okay, uh, to to make the leap to recognise that actually I'm meant to be observing the candidate's performance. And so where I find it becomes clear for people is when I explain that, well, what we're observing is the product. You know, we're observing the, the work that the student produces. So if we task the student with undertaking a risk analysis, you know, they would they would go away and they'd analyse the, the the risks and the environment and, and they do, uh, you know, they they break the risks and and identify mitigation strategies and so forth. But but ultimately, what they would do is they would record all of that into a, a risk assessment document, and and really, it's that document that we're making the observation against. And so, if the performance criteria said that uh, you know that the person was required to identify the likelihood of risks occurring, okay? Well, you know, you can look in the risk assessment that the students produced and you can identify uh, how they allocated their risk rating around likelihood and 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 you as a subject matter expert, of course, okay, can uh, critique that work and decide, well, did the student apply a proper rationale to identifying, to identifying uh, the likelihood in that case? And so, so the, the key point here is that even when we've got cognitive tasks that are that often just result in a in a in a document or a product, okay, um, that's the observable point right there in that product. And so so in that situation, what I would suggest is that we would have a we would still have the you know the same type of observation tool, you know, with our very clear customized criteria, and we'd be reviewing that student's work, you know, uh, side by side. And we'd be asking ourselves, well, did they do that? Okay, and that and that is and that is a little bit of a paradigm jump between the typical situation we associate with observation assessment, where the student is practically demonstrating the performance in front of you. Um, so, so that's the that's the key point: is that all units of competency require observation. I also think that not only does that make the assessment more compliant makes it a little bit more efficient to conduct as well, I would argue, in terms of the way that the assessor reviews the work and, and critiques it against the student's performance. Um, the other thing I quick I quickly make in this, uh, the point I make in the article is that there are units of competency that fall between these two, this difference between a practical unit and a cognitive unit. 
And and you will often have units of competency that have both of those traits, you know. And, and funny enough, they seem to, these types of units mainly occupy the certificate four space because they're balancing a certificate four is often balancing the, the requirement still to have your toes in the water on practical uh, performance. But there's also, well, now I'm also a team leader and now I need to think and plan and analyse, you know. And so, yeah, there's a great example in the article I give where a unit of competency relating to supervise work routines and staff performance. There's a balance of both practical uh, components there, particularly relating to communication, but there's also, uh, you know, lots of cognitive uh, tasks where the student's producing work. So that's that's the key point about that uh, all units of competency require observation. Uh, the next point I make in the article is about uh, benchmarking around reliability. And I would have to say, you know, in the in the contemporary sort of space that we operate in at the moment, that um, that reliability would have to be, you know, easily in the top five non-compliances that I see on a regular basis. Reliability has has changed over over the years. Um, in my experience, uh, involved in in regulatory auditing, you know, since two thousand seven ish, it it has changed significantly. I start out with the point in in my article that if we are going to ask a knowledge question, all right, then we would uh, be expected to have the answer to that question. It make that makes sense because you know you don't ask a question you don't have the answer to. Uh, reliability, of course, is a principle of assessment, uh, and and so if we have a knowledge question, of course, we need a knowledge an, an answer to that question, so that when the student submits their written work. We can compare their uh, their their answer to the benchmark answer, and and that gives us a, a guide as to whether the student's uh, you know answer was 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 satisfactory. But it also has the benefit of uh, making sure that between these three or four assessors, that they're all assessing against the same standard, and therein lays the essence of of reliability. You know, we've now got uh, reliability uh, between those assessors and between students. Um, not to mention it also supports fairness in the assessment. So everyone can understand that, okay, about, about having benchmarks around written knowledge assessment. The, the, the less commonly uh, understood concept is that that also extends to observation assessment. And, and I would say that, you know, if I think back about my time where, where this first emerged, definitely emerged out of the old um, uh, Department of Education and the Arts in Queensland. I, I never, I, I'll never forget. I was doing a, assisting a client with an application, and and we got this back, and it was made non-compliant because it didn't have, it didn't have um, benchmarking, you know. And to be honest, back in those days, I had to sort of, well, what are, what are they talking about, you know? Um, and so, you know, I went off and researched. I, I think I argued the point uh, for a couple of years, and and sometimes I win, but most of the times they don't stack up. And, and probably, I'd say probably a decade ago, I decided just to move on and to adopt the position that if we're going to have an observation assessment, then, then we need to uh, provide some guidance to the assessor about what do these observation criteria mean? You know, I, was, I actually just had, you know, this morning I spend uh, most of my day on Zoom and I was having a conversation with a client and we're talking about this very topic and we were looking at, uh, you know, working at heights as an example. And, you know, I, I, I was saying to them, we were pointing out observation criteria uh, which uh, require the person to apply 
uh, you know, safety requirements around the working at heights. And, and of course, the observation criteria, you know, says something like um, to, you know, establish safety requirements. I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's, it's a very broad statement, right? And I said to the client, well, what is that? You know, well, what are we looking for, you know? And, of course, the client's a subject matter expert, so they just absolutely just unpack it in front of me. Uh, and I say, great, that's that's the benchmark. That's what we're talking about. Between, you know, you as the assessor, uh, we need to identify, well, what what is it that we're looking for when we make an observation of this criteria uh, so that we can get all the assessors on the same uh, hymn sheet so that we're all making observations to the same standard. And, of course, we might get the situation where some assessors disagree, and that's fine, and that's what moderation's about, to bring those assessors together, to have those uh, those uh, great discussions to actually come to a point where we all agree that, yes, that's what we're observing for. I'll give you a really good example. I was uh, working with a client in um, in an electrical trade, and um, and I was working with one of their trainers who I was trying to sort of explain this to in terms of what they needed to do. And I said, and, and we were talking about putting general purpose outlet plugs, you know, in walls and stuff like that. And I, I said, you know, talk me through what what are you looking for when you when they're installing a, a GPO? And um, and one of the things he said is he said I always like to make sure that they've uh, that there's enough uh, there's a good length of cord attached to the GPO sitting behind the wall when we put it on. And uh, and he explained why, you know, when they need to pull it off and they've got to do maintenance, you know, you need enough cord to work with. So he's actually planning for the future about someone who's going to ta- have to take that plug off and do something, you know. And I just thought, well, that's just the best example of where a subject matter experts, you know, drawing on all their industry experience and they're saying, you know, when I assess this, this is what I'm looking for. Okay, and that is the essence of benchmarking against observ- against observation criteria. As I say, it's very common non-compliance. Uh, the non-compliance would essentially say that the RTO did not have sufficient, you know, mechanisms to support the reliability of the assessment, which of course is a principle of assessment required under 1.8. So now I'm not saying this is easy. It's definitely not easy. Uh, and when I'm working with clients to, you know, introduce this, it's, uh, you know, it's sometimes challenging. But uh, but that's where we need to get to. It's definitely where we need to get to, so that you've got reliability between your assessors. All right, I'll move straight on, Claire. If you're happy, I'll move on to the uh, to the last point in this section, which is about uh, recording observation evidence. Yep, go for it. Okay, so of course one of the one of the principles of uh, sorry one of the rules of evidence is validity and sufficiency. And so what that means is that uh, the evidence that you uh, you you record and retain it needs to be valid, i.e., related to the the performance of the student uh, based on the tasks completed, and, and of course it, there needs to be sufficient evidence. So there needs to be enough evidence that demonstrates that you know that all parts of the units of competency were assessed. Now I, I would say that you know this is again this is one of the very 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 common non-compliances that we see. Uh, the, the the regulator will regularly pick up, and even more than the regulator these days, uh, I find uh, funding authorities. You know, particularly New South Wales, uh, Victoria, uh, South Australia, uh, those states have have a laser focus on making sure that the assessments being conducted under those funded arrangements are you know supported by valid assessment evidence. And so, and so this need for assessors to record observation evidence is is uh, is, is critical, and of course, I, I point out in the article that, 
it's uh, it's not just me saying this, of course. There's, there's a general direction issued by the, the national regulator, which specifies that, uh, that the evidence retained must be sufficient to demonstrate the judgment of the assessor about the candidate's performance. And so, you know, in a really, uh, you know, in a really basic uh, way to put it is that tick and flick is not going to work. You know, when, when I open up assessment tools and I see uh, observation tools with just tick, 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 tick and, and a signature down the bottom, um, that's nothing. I mean, basically, I say to clients, look, basically, you've got nothing here. You know, this is just a sheet of paper with ticks against criteria, but there's no evidence on it. And again, you know, the, the regulator's been very clear about this. I know that in their past uh, webinars that they've produced, they've they've particularly talked about tick and flick, and they've made the point about the need to record sufficient evidence, uh, and uh, and it's a really critical point. I just finished by saying that there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll often uh, get uh, pushback from trainers who'll say, you know, what am I going to write, and uh, or you know, or how can I improve on what's already there? So what what should I write down? I think that, you know, I, I say to those trainers that really that's your job as a subject matter expert to know what you're looking for and to make a judgment. And I always confront them by saying, well, are you telling me that, you know, that when you're making an observation, you're not thinking at all about, you know, about how how you would perform the task and what you're expecting to see? And of course they answer, well, absolutely, I am. Okay, well, great. Well, what we need to do is we need to actually capture some of that those thoughts down as uh, as observation evidence. I always make the point that look, you know, we're not looking for war and peace here. We don't want extreme amounts of detail. I, I point out in the article that I, I, a little trick that I use with clients, like I get them to merge all the the cells in Word on the right hand side of the document, so that they open up a nice big clear space to record observation comments. Um, you know, I don't, I, I really, I don't recommend that we would be writing a, a comment against every single criteria. I don't think that's necessary. I think that's a bit over the top. And I think an auditor that expects that's been a bit unreasonable, to be honest. But I do think that, you know, we do need to record some some good supporting comments about the student's performance and about why the assessor thought they were, they were, uh, they were competent. And, and I also always suggest that they focus those comments on on the technical aspects of the task, okay? Um, so, you know, try and sort of think at that level. Uh, so recording observation evidence is really critical. It, it really is the only evidence that the observation was conducted. So it's that critical, you know? Um, yeah, so hopefully I've given a, a good summary of those. You certainly have, and some really helpful examples as well, uh, which I think people will find particularly useful. Well, that's it for this part of my discussion with Joe on getting observational assessment right. I hope you found it useful in clarifying what's needed and why. And if you're interested in his thoughts on where and how ASQA needs to improve, then jump on to the next episode and have a listen. <laughs>